0: earn 12 continuing education credits as you discover how to better support clients who have an interest in psychedelics. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Hello and
1: welcome to the Radiate Wellness Podcast with your host, metaphysician, Reiki master, and hypnotherapist, Christy Clemens Hoffman. Each week, we will discover teachings, tips, and tools to radiate your best life ever with practitioners, authors, and luminaries to help you on your path. Wellness, joy, peace, abundance.
2: What do you want to radiate? Welcome back to the Radiate Wellness Podcast. Today, we radiate religion with Jonas Atlas, who is a religious scholar and mystic. And who's written this new book, Religion: Reality Behind the Myths? This is going to be an interesting conversation. Hi, Jonas. Thank you so much for joining me today.
3: Lovely. Nice for having. Thank you for having me.
2: Oh, absolutely. And you're in beautiful Belgium. I love Belgium. It's a gorgeous country. So let's dig in. Religion. I mean, that's a pretty hefty title that incorporates so much. What is your background and what is the reason for you writing this
3: book? The reason for writing the book is because I'm a God-believing person, I guess I should term it. And being from Belgium, it's a nice little country. It's in the West of Europe. It's a secularized country, so to speak, or that's what people think of it. And in a secularized country like Belgium, which used to be heavily Catholic or dominantly Catholic, people have the feeling that's all behind them. But I grew up as somebody who simply believed in God and thought that was just one way of looking at the world and the universe and so on. But I have constantly been confronted with having to explain myself why I still believe in a concept like God and why I would do religious things and stuff like that. So that's part of what triggered me to write it, but... I mean, I have that experience of having to defend myself for the last 20 years. And it's only been three or four years ago that I thought, I'm going to write a book about this, where I've got the main arguments against religion. I've heard them by now, and I can actually classify them. Just on a side note, I'm quite a fan of Rupert Teltrake, and he has a book, The Science Delusion, And that's about the 10 dogmas in science. And that's kind of what triggered me. When I read his book, then I thought, hey, I can do the same thing for religion. There's those seven common assumptions about religion that I hear over and over and over again. And as somebody who has studied theology and anthropology, by now I kind of figured out that those seven assumptions really aren't very true. And it doesn't get us into useful conversations about religion, let alone that it allows you to give religion and spirituality and mysticism a proper place in your own life when you get stuck in those concepts about religion.
2: Now, how do you separate religion and spirituality,
3: or do you? I don't, in a large part. That's to say that if people, what they mean or what they refer to when they use the word spirituality, it's about things, stuff on the inside, while they pretend that religion itself is all the outer things. It's the dogma, it's the institutions, and so on and so on. And that's why they like to separate it. Now, I don't have a problem with separating the inner aspect of what we're dealing with and the outer aspect of what we're dealing with, but to act as if the mainstream traditional religions or whatever you want to call them are purely outer and are only focused on the dogmas and the rituals, while there is no spirituality, that makes no sense to me. And on the other side, claiming that you're spiritual without having any outer practice or belief or structure around it, that also doesn't make any sense. So my thing would be that spirituality always gets expressed within a religion and that religion All true history has always had loads of mysticism and spirituality associated with it, and that in the core it belongs to it. That's not to say that every person who has been involved in a religion was necessarily a mystic or practicing his or her spirituality in a religion in a spiritual way. Certainly not. But the same kind of goes for people who claim to be spiritual but not religious. They also often are not. Always what they pretend to be, let's say.
2: Right. I think that's the reason for my question, is that we think they go together, Mm -hmm. not necessarily. Some practice one, but not the other. And some people get it. Here in America, religion is a very sticky subject.
3: A very sticky subject. Yeah, which is specifically American, I have the feeling. I've got my own localized version of thinking about secularism and religion, of course, because it's Europe. But in America... You've got more of this politicized version of religion still, that's gone in Europe. I mean, the Christian Democrats are nothing like what the evangelical right would be. They're the centrist. it's about a bit traditional, but they don't ever say anything about Christ or Christianity. That's just their roots. And people in the party would even wonder whether they have to drop the sea of Christian Democrats in the name of their party. And that's something different in the US, of course. The whole debate about religion is inextricably bound with the evangelical right and how certain conservative views are taken up in the social and political debates.
2: Right. Taking the religion and forming the basis for the political structures or the political tenets, like is done in many, many countries that have a religious um, Mm -hmm. theme in their politics and their structure. Mm -hmm. Now, Earlier, just a minute ago, you talked about seven myths or seven, can you break down what those are? Sure.
3: So the first myth is what basically most people think religion is about, and it's about faith and dogma and things that you believe in, that you mentally believe this is true and something else isn't true. And from that belief follows, if this is true, I have to act in my life like this and this. So there is a God, and that God wants me to live my life in such a way and drink alcohol or not drink alcohol or stuff like that. And then the second myth is that religion is necessarily organized religion, that there's always this particular structure with some priestly class on the top of it, be it priests or rabbis or imams, whatever, and those dictate what the believers have to believe. And then the third myth is that religions, because they have those strict convictions, are clearly separated from each other. There you've got the Buddhists, they believe in one thing, and on the other side you've got Jews, but they don't mingle, or the Christians and the Muslims, they don't get along, because they have different convictions. Then the fourth myth is that spiritual but not religious makes sense, that you can really take the spiritual out of religion and vice versa. And then the fifth myth is that science and religion have always clashed with one another, that they don't mix well, and that one is about reason and the other is about belief, and therefore is more irrational than a scientific approach to the world. And the sixth myth is that because religion is based on irrational faith, it goes together with loads of violence. If there was no religion in society or in the world, we would have a lot less violence. And then the seventh myth is the last one that actually combines a bit of the first six. That's to say, because of all the above, a secular world is much better than a religious world, because that secular world is more rational, is less dogmatic, and so on and so on. So those are the seven myths in a nutshell. You know, we could do episodes on each one of them. Indeed, indeed that's part of what the book tried to do there there is a lot of academic research on each one of them and you can read books on one specific topic and i thought but we really have to bring them together because everybody kind of feels you don't have to believe necessarily each one of them but you know them you know them from debates on tv you know them from talking to people in a pub or in high school or whatever it's the seven general themes that pop up again and again and again when you're talking about religion. And that's why I brought them together. I wanted to show the whole concept is a problem because we can't define the concept to begin with. There's no consensus among academics about definition of religion. But we tend to not care about it because we attribute those seven assumptions to the concept.
2: Well, it's almost as though the concept is defined by the myths. Mm -hmm.
3: Indeed. Indeed, yeah. Right. Yeah, that... and, and people don't even see them as myths. If I call them myths, then most people will go, like, But that's all true. Religion is dogmatic. Religion is hierarchically structured and so on. And that's where I try to go through in the book to show that, well, it's more complex and we understand that.
2: Right. So, okay, let's maybe start with the definition of religion. What do you define
3: it as? What do I think it is? Well, that's a good one. In the book, <laughs> I take that one all the way at the end, because I first have to break down those common assumptions. It's not this, it's not this, it's not this, so what is it eventually? But it's kind of good in a conversation to start with, because I have to use it all the time to explain myself. And my definition basically is, religion is a language, but not a language with words or with grammar. It's a language with stories, with rituals, with symbols, with ideas as well and with lifestyles and it's such a language because it's a psychological existential spiritual language it tries to express in your life those things that you think are really important but that we often don't have words for so for the stuff in life and in the universe that our language as such is not enough Then we start using religion. Religion as it expresses stuff that is important. One of the most simple examples would be, what if somebody dies, what do you do? You don't just go and talk to each other and say, oh, that guy died and that's it. No, no, you, you make a ritual around it. You do something with it to express within your community all the feelings, all the emotions, all the experiences that you have around the person. And you need that ritual to get this outpouring or outflow of the existential, spiritual, and psychological movements within yourself, within the community, and to share them with each other. That will be just one example of the many you could give that that kind of allows me to use the concept of language in a sensible way for religion.
2: Right. And then language is only just kind of a shortcut to understanding. It's like a mutually agreed upon yeah. way to understand each other. So. Yeah. Do you think we have religion? What is the function of religion, and how do we get to that?
3: Well, the function would be to give you such a language, and that's also just like language; it arises very naturally. And that that brings me immediately to one of them. It's it's not like there's always this priestly class which then determines what you have to believe. Lots of beliefs that are going on in a religion are stuff that just emerges just like words emerge because you have to use them and words change as well all through history. Sometimes they have those connotations in the Middle Ages that completely are gone by now or something and a good example would be in a language we understand this of course that the words change but in in religion we have the tendency to think that it always was there. But One good example from the tradition I grew up in Christianity would be Trinity which is one of the most core concepts to Christianity, and it definitely is an important concept for me. It allows me to symbolically think about the universe and my relationship to other people and to the rest of nature and so on. But that doesn't mean that the apostles had it. So that means that the immediate followers of Christ, the apostles themselves, had nothing whatsoever that looked like a concept of Trinity. It wasn't there yet. It took a couple of decades to centuries even, to really solidify the concept of Trinity. And even then, then it became an important concept for theologians. That doesn't mean that the general public was really interested in the intricacies of such a theological concept. And you can see that today, even in Belgium. Let's say if I go to a church here, in this specific context, it might be secularized. You still have plenty of Christians who go to church. But if I go into church and I put a microphone under their nose and I ask them, can you please explain me Trinity? They'll go a bit like, what the hell are you asking? And if they try to explain something, bumbling will come out and it probably won't look like what the general theologian would make of Trinity. And so that's the good example everybody thinks you should believe in. In the Trinitarian concept of God, if you're a Christian, yeah, but well, reality simply is that half of the Christians probably are not so acquainted with it. And to give just another example, which I like about in the US, 30% of Catholics believe in reincarnation. Well, there goes the idea that Christians by definition believe in heaven and so on and so on. And there also goes the idea that religions don't make reincarnation is not necessarily... A typical Christian contrast i d within the tradition, but since the influence of loads of Eastern traditions, Buddhism and Hinduism in Western spirituality, that means that at least thirty percent of Catholics in the u s are that's what we've got data on. I guess it's actually higher in countries like Belgium and, and the Netherlands where
2: well, I mean, and this is the kind of the debate here in the United States. Are you a fundamentalist? do you believe
3: in the
2: Bible? Or are you living church that you believe that our religion can evolve, can change, can grow?
3: Mm-hmm. So where are yeah. you? Oh, uh, it's pretty straightforward where I am. Religion evolves, but I'm not saying so from a moralistic perspective or something. Like you shouldn't be fundamentalist and that's all wrong and it's a wrong approach and we have to evolve our religion to be more modern and so on. That might be your idea might come close to mine, but that's not really the point I'm making. The point I'm making is that religion has always involved. So I'm not saying to the fundamentalists you're wrong on a theological, spiritual level, whatever. I'm basically simply arguing you're pretty much wrong in a historic sense and in a sociological sense. And being a fundamentalist is extremely difficult to really be it straightforwardly. That is to say, if you've got... Plenty of groups of fundamentalists who decry one another, who hereticize the other side. That means that it's absolutely unclear what the pure religion would be. Because if that supposedly is so clear what you have to do to be a real fundamental Christian then you wouldn't have all those other fundamentalist groups who clearly have other ideas and other practices and so on. So fundamentalists tend to shoot each other in the foot because they try to be the one and only, but in the way they do it, they kind of show that it's impossible to create this one and only that's clear for all time, that this is the way their religion should be lived. And it makes historically no sense because of well, specifically when we talk about Christianity and so on, fundamentalism, the word itself originated at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, specific Protestant groups in the US who were reacting against the positivists. Ideas of their times where academics were gradually growing in the idea that science would solve everything and it's a bit stupid to believe in God because the world is nothing but matter and the material laws of the universe are enough to explain everything around us. Logically, lots of people who didn't have much else within their community than their religious context in which they felt well and good were kind of denying such new ideas because for them it was very important to be able to still believe in their God. And so they get this, in my view, kind of materialist reaction. They try to take the Bible as the literal building blocks of their concepts. And so if it's written there, then it means that it's true. It's a bit as a pendulum swinging on the other side, where the one says, because there's something written there that makes no sense, like a snake talking, that's why we throw away the whole Bible. And then the other side goes, no, no, but the snake really talked. And then you get into this kind of discussion, which for me, in a historic sense, makes no sense at all, because that really wasn't how Christians have been dealing with their own religion for most of the last two millennia. Even the examples I mostly gave, but I could cite plenty of others as well, but the examples I mostly give are St. Augustine and Origen, which are really big philosophers slash theologians of the first three to five centuries of Christianity and in their text it's pretty clear that they write well like Genesis obviously this is not about how the world was created we need to take this symbolically if there's stuff that we know from nature that doesn't confirm to the Bible then the Bible has to be taken allegorically metaphorically and symbolically that was the normal way of dealing with the Bible for most of Christianity it's only in the last couple of hundred years that this new idea of being a real christian is taking it literally that's when it originated or taking your bible literally that's when it's originated but it's not for most of christianity among theologians at least that certainly wasn't the way of approaching the sacred text and so that goes to show people claim to be fundamentalist and claim that, that the proper way of living their religion but if even Saint Augustine did it in another way. Does that mean he was a bad Christian, or what do I have to think? So, no fundamentalists. Again, it's not a moral argument I'm making. It's just the argument. I don't think it makes a lot of sense in a sociological, theological, and historic sense.
2: You know, here in the states, we have the same debate around the Constitution. You know, do you take it literally, or is it a living yeah. document?
3: Yeah, indeed.
2: But Christianity is not the only religion that no. debate. This also exists in
3: yeah all of yeah, them. Every, all religions have always debated and interpreted, and even the fundamentalists have to interpret. They have to admit it. Some texts are there, and they are contradicted by other texts. What you do with them? So you give an explanation to it, and but, then there's loads of stuff that we're confronted with. Today, which didn't exist in the time when the Bible or the Quran or the Dhammapada were written. So everybody will have to interpret what's saying there to place it on today's context. So that's naturally what you do. There's nothing bizarre there. That's what always has happened. Perhaps a good example would be the Alema of the Islamic world. The Alema is the what we could call in a Western sense, the academics. Basically, the people who have studied Quran and jurisprudence and the stuff that you needed to study when you wanted to become a theologian or a jurist or whatever. And that concept of scholars, basically, people who know something about it, those have always debated. And then there's the concept of ijma. Certain things are kind of consensus within the larger community. There's never a complete consensus, but those are things like people aren't allowed to steal, people aren't allowed to murder, and so on and so on. So there's some, ijma and some things, but most other things have always been debated. And that goes to one of the myths, and that goes to show how people get stuck within the discussions about religion that really makes it difficult to properly discuss religion. One example would be A word like fatwa. Fatwa in most non-Muslim Western people's minds gives images of Ayatollah Khomeini placing a fatwa on Salman Rushdie or something. So like a dogma, like... A high priest of the Islamic world has said something, and now all Muslims have to follow this. That's absolutely not what the concept fatwa is about. A fatwa is somebody who has studied long and hard about a certain topic within certain credentialed universities and who has then proposed his or her opinion about a certain topic or theme or moral conduct or something. And then somebody else might put his own fatwa in and kind of contradict the fatwa that the first scholar has put forward. And that was what the Islamic world has been doing for centuries. But one of the bigger theologians of today, Abd hakim Murad, whom I've interviewed a couple of times, also for other books and so on, he said, well, one of the reasons why this normal process of debating was gone is, of course, the internet. Where there's somebody who just claims some religious authority and then blasts his or her fatwa on the internet. And then on 20,000 kilometers further, somewhere online, there's a young kid reading it. And he thinks, yeah, that's right. And I'm angry too on my with my dad. And what he says gives me the right to be annoying to my dad or something like that which wouldn't be normally a normal fatwa that arises but people go along with it but again that's not that's typical yes you'll find this in islam you'll find this in christianity you'll find this everywhere in the spiritual but not religious circles you get it with things like yoga and mindfulness and whatever somebody claims of himself that he's a guru and starts this meditation group and then in the end it turns out he abuses his pupils or whatever what's his name again i forget always the guy from the hot yoga is a very oh. case in point of course also john of god in brazil and oh, yeah, yeah. loads 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 and in all sorts of traditions so that's the normal thing Scholars can't always keep up with the fastness of uh, today's uh, information technology. But in every tradition, this robust dialogue has been going on. And it still is surprising to me that people think that Islam was something that the Prophet Muhammad determined. And then since then, all Muslims are following that same line of thinking. Well, no, it's a bit more complex than that.
2: Very complex. So you also write about politics and religion.
0: Yeah, what's your stance on that? Are you a healthcare professional looking to translate psychedelic research into practice? Then register for psychedelic harm reduction and integration, a professional training offered by psychologist Elizabeth Nielsen and Ingmar Gorman at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26. Earn 12 continuing education credits as you discover how to better support clients who have an interest in psychedelics. Learn more at eomega.org thrive.
2: I don't want to take too much of your time, but I would like to ask you a few simple favors. First of all, please rate, review, and share this podcast wherever you're listening. You know, it sounds like a simple little thing, and it is, but it has a huge impact for us because it helps other people find us in the podcasting algorithms. I don't know how it works, but I do know that it helps a lot. Next, if you would subscribe or follow wherever you're listening, whether that's YouTube or Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Pandora, Spotify, wherever you're listening, just hit subscribe or follow, and that helps you and it helps us. It helps you because then you receive notifications when we have a new episode that's out. It helps us because, again, algorithm, magic, I don't know what happens, but it helps. And then finally, you can support our podcast in a tangible way by going to radiatewellnesscommunity.com slash podcast and then click on support the show. Now we have a new feature too. We are now on Patreon. You can find us on Patreon. You can also find the link to Patreon when you go to radiatewellnesscommunity.com slash podcast. So on Patreon for $3 a month or $5 a month, you can support your metaphysical and spiritual growth. You can learn about upcoming guests and you can get early and ad-free versions of the shows. So Please support us. This podcast is free for you to listen, but we have costs and quite frankly, they come out of my pocket. So if you like this content, if you get a lot out of it, please see what you can do to give back. Thank you so much.
3: Well, you also can't separate them a bit like spirituality and and religion. And that's why it's important to come back perhaps to my definition of religion as a language. It's what you express and your deepest thoughts and feelings and emotions and existential Both convictions but also experiences. And that's also important. Religion is not simply about convictions. It's also about community. It's also about experience. And you try to express it in language. And since it's about community. It's also about morality. By definition. What's a good way of living my life? But that will have political consequences. By definition. And it's strange to think that. You could separate religion from politics. All your politics will, by definition, somehow be informed by deep convictions about life. If I'm convinced that the ecological structure of the world should be maintained, then I'll fight for more veggie-like policies in society. That's only normal. And I don't see why that would be a problem if my conviction about the ecological structure of the world is informed by my Hinduism or by my Christianity or whatever. That doesn't matter. So there's another thing to say that church and state should be separated. But first of all, that brings us to the second myth. It's not like every religion is organized in a church-like structure. That's pretty typical for the Catholic world and perhaps Tibetan Buddhism. But there's not so. Most religions are quite decentralized. There's no pope of Islam. There's no pope of Hinduism who could say what the real tenets of that belief are. There's, of course, communities that are structured more or less hierarchically but that's simply what humans do. I mean, every company is structured more or less hierarchically and every state, nation state in the world is also organized more or less hierarchically or more or less democratically. And there's no difference in religion. You get all the different types of organizing everywhere. And so to say that the church shouldn't have everything to say about what's going on in life. Yes, of course, but no institution should have. That's not to say that your religious ideas shouldn't be brought into the public debate. Why not? If the religious ideas, what makes them different than liberal ideas or socialistic ideas or conservative ideas versus progressive ideas? Okay, you've got Christian IDs and Hindu ideas and so on. That's something completely else. Then one institution shouldn't rule the ethics of the world. Certainly not. But personally, I don't think that the division between church and state is the real problem today and it's more multinational and state. If we're going to talk about certain institutions that have too much to say over how we live our lives, then it truly is multinationals and the way they dictate that we have to live a consumer life. And then actually religions become really interesting because most of them have a certain spirituality that teaches you that well maybe following all the drifts of my ego isn't the best way of going about my life and then it becomes interesting but that's partly why I think that the the division exists in people's mind if religion isn't allowed in the public square because it needs to be kept private That gives the full room to the state and to the companies to dictate how we're going to live. And somebody else who thinks, well, but maybe I've got this profit. And he said that following the money God and the real God aren't the same thing. And I'd like to follow the real God and not your money God. Somebody like that is a bit controversial within a structure that likes to keep it more on the side of consumerism.
2: True. True. I do believe that the real debate of separating religion and the state, state and religion, becomes when you dictate what the religion of the state Mm must be and how laws must follow one particular religion. But, you know, having it more open that we all have these moral compasses within our spiritual paths Mm -hmm. that form how we live our lives. So,
3: Yeah, yeah. yeah, it gets to be a sticky, It is a sticky thing, but it's a good example, again, of how we think that generally religions will want to rule the world themselves and that everybody should follow that one religion. And that also isn't true. We could give plenty of examples, and one of the best would be Mahatma Gandhi. Because of his Hindu ideas, he believed that everybody should have the right to live his or her own religion. And it's the same for me. With Because of my concept of the way God is, I think he was manifested or, let's say, people saw different sides of the divine and gave language to it. And that language to me is religion. So I'm not going to ban any religion. Just like I won't ban any language, that wouldn't make sense. It's just a way of presenting that facet or that part of the divine that you have discovered within your tradition and community and so on but i believe so because i believe in god it makes sense to me to to look at the world in that way and i'm not modern or new when i have these ideas these are century old there's always been in every tradition people who have viewed it in that way i've given plenty of examples in my book but it's pretty typical actually to have this idea that well yes we all try to get to something divine but we express it in different ways just like the story the well-known story of the elephant and the four blind men touching it on different parts and giving different words to the elephant and they simply can't see the whole but theologians have been smart enough to come up with the concept that yes well that's because we're human as humans We're too limited. We aren't God. If we would be God, we'd see the whole picture. But we can't. We're human. And those who claim that they can see the whole picture, those are a problem. And that I do believe. And that brings us back to fundamentalism. For me, the problem with fundamentalism, if I do get moralistic about it, it's that one. You claim to be God, or at least you claim to have the view that only God has. And then my point towards fundamentalists becomes an internal theological one. I don't believe you on your own theological grounds. You claim that God is bigger than everything else. And all of a sudden, you're going to say that you perfectly know what God wants and it happens to be the thing that you want. That, for me, is usurping the place of God. And so internally, theologically... I do have a really big problem with it as a Christian to other Christians, but the same would go for people who claim such a position in Islam. And it also goes for people who claim to be secular, for example, who claim that they know what democracy is. And so it's my duty to go and bomb all those other countries into democracy. Well, that makes just as little sense. It's not about God, but it's claiming this God-like position. So the problem with violence and religion, in my view, is never religion leads to violence. It's not belief in God, which leads to violence. It's claiming that you have the God's eye that might lead to violence, because that claim also makes this difference between, I'm the one who knows, and all the others are the stupid ones. And then you've got the us versus them that leads to that kind of hierarchical power play and violence.
2: Which we see in colonialism as well. Mm-hmm. Fort- Religion on indigenous people who are just perfectly fine the way they are, but they must be changed in the conqueror's eyes, of course, that they're not fine the way they are because they don't have my certain view of religion.
3: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, because they, they don't have my view. And it's an interesting one, the colonial example, because... At first, when the colonial missionaries and so on went to India and South America, there's plenty of examples of missionaries who went and then wrote letters back to say, there's no religion here. (laughs) Those people don't have any religion. I've never seen one. So imagine they come into India, they see all those temples and no, there's no religion there. And that's an example of a word that simply has changed its meaning all through history. Religion wasn't a big thing in the Middle Ages. Nobody talked about it. It became a big thing when the Protestants and the Catholics had an issue. And what it became was a word to basically say that your faith has to be inner, that you have to interiorize it. It's what you believe, but perhaps not the others. Keep it to yourself. Because the state will from now on dictate what the public square should look like. And the concept of a state also didn't used to exist before. Nobody taught in terms of nation states. It arises, and that's not a coincidence, but it arises at the same time. The concept of religion and the concept of a nation state. So the first thing that happens is that religion becomes this internal thing focused on faith. But what you had was religions in the plural were actually what we call denominations today. So you had the Protestant religion and Catholic religion and the Orthodox religion. That's how they thought about it in the 16th century, let's say. And then gradually through colonialism, that changes. Because what happens is first, since religion is limited to having a focus on the right God, the one God, all those others like Hindus who had plenty of gods and so on. No, no, no. Those were just the heathens. Those were outside of the category and so they went to India and they went to South America and they thought, I don't see any religion here. Those those are just a bunch of pagans, has nothing to do with religion. And once they're there, once they have already claimed the power over pieces of land and communities and so on, then it becomes useful, well, we have to classify those people because classifying also allows you uh, the classic divide and conquer, uh, the classic divide and conquer. So... To divide people, we have to classify them. And there's actually one of the biggest, not theologian, but scholars of comparative religion, let's say the precursor to comparative religion. He actually really said, so let's change this idea of divide and conquer and change it to classify and conquer. And that's what they did. Oh, you've got the Sunnis and the Shiites, and that's a bit like Protestants and Catholics. So even if they're not fighting against each other, we'll make sure that they start not liking each other because that helps you to divide political fractions as well and put them against each other. And you do the same with certain Hindus and you put the Brahmans on top and then the others on the other side. So you emphasize the caste structure, things like that. And you do all sorts of things to classify the whole of society and the whole of the world into religions. First, you don't see them, but then the concept started out to be, or turned out to be useful as a categorization of the rest of the world. And that's where eventually the real concept like we know it today, all people have this faith in which they belong. That's when it originated. And that's also how we still think about the world, if we're honest. We see the West as the only secularized part of the world, and all the others are still religious. Actually, just shows the same kind of colonial type of thinking. We're beyond religion, but those they're still a bit stuck. We have to help them to get out and to be more free and to be less religious about it and more spiritual, something like that.
2: No, that is absolutely right. You know, and there's also the school of thought that you know all religions are basically the same thing. You know, mm-hmm. it's higher power, and it's like they're all the yeah. same. They just call them
3: things. Yeah, right. yeah, and that one for me is is really tricky. I find it very interesting to talk about because on one side, yes, you've got this colonial attitude to it. Oh, I've seen it. I've known all religions. I've never read the Veda. I don't read the Upanishad. I haven't even read closely in the Dhammapada. But I can claim that all Buddhism and all Hinduism, it's all the same and it leads to the same thing because it's only the spiritual core. So that's a bit of this arrogant, I see it all without even having to delve deeper into it. That one I find problematic, of course. But on the other side, and that's why I find it interesting, this idea of there is a spiritual core to all religions and all of them are trying to express it in other terms, that's a really old idea. It's not typical for all academia, but there is a certain strength within academia that is pretty strong on, on that type of thinking. It was strong in the perennialists from Aldous Huxley to the Schuons and so on. But it's strong all through history. Deists used to think like that. Before that, there was something called the Prisca Theologia in the Latin West. But also in Islam, or you could refer to the Manicheans and whatever, those kinds of ideas. Also in Sikhism, so in, in Hinduism, it's pretty normative even to think of this, to think like this about the various spiritual traditions in the world. So I find it difficult to give it all its proper place. On the one side, we should be a bit wary of not being too colonial and arrogant and usurping it and saying that, oh, I know what it's about because there is difference there as well. Please respect the various expressions that are there just lump, don't lump them together as if it's one big blob. No, no. There is difference. It's good to delve into a tradition and to learn the intricacies and the details. It gives you more language to speak about the divine. But on the other side, I am sympathetic to this hypothesis, I'll call it, that there is a certain spiritual core. But that gets us to the theological side of things. Talking about religion is always talking religiously you almost can't do it in a neutral academic or whatever way without being involved that's to say and this is a good example the thing that we're discussing if i believe there is a god and if i believe he is a bad word but that's what we have in english he whatever if it tries to express itself to humanity It has done so in different languages and in different religions. That's what I believe. And so that's what I'll find in religion. That's what I'll see. If you don't look at it that way, and if you think that religions are nothing but mental constructs of humans throughout history, then probably you'll find more variety and it won't lead you to that one spiritual core. But it's a theological debate, which is worth having.
2: Right, right. Absolutely. You know, speaking of these theological debates, you've got some podcasts out there.
3: Mm
2: -hmm, mm -hmm. Can you talk about a bit about those and where we can find them?
3: Yeah, yeah. That's Revisioning Religion. And I try to talk about all these kinds of topics with academics and see where it leads to really rethink the concept of religion and also always find out what can it mean for us today. If this is a new way of approaching religion, what does it mean on a practical level in our own lives. And so it's always on the crossroads of this religion, politics, mysticism, and where the three go together. That's for me where it becomes interesting. So all this division between those topics, it's a bit sad to me. And It becomes fun when you think about it and in the intermingling of those concepts.
2: I mean, I've always felt that religion was f- trying to find meaning in our lives, trying mm-hmm. to find purpose and a meaning. And then when we combine those three tenets, the religion, mysticism, and the politics, it's like that's where our meaning is.
3: Yeah. Yeah, of course. And yeah, yeah.
2: dialogues with different people from different, you know, backgrounds and ways of thinking, that's really where we make the most progress.
3: Absolutely. Absolutely.
2: Again, your book is religion, reality behind the myths. And you want to give a plug out for your
3: website? That's Jonasatlas.net. And there's not too much (laughs) on the website, but it does link you to my books and it links you to my podcasts and it links you to my articles and so on. And my previous articles as well. I've done this halal monk journey once. It wasn't a real journey, but over three years I've interviewed many theologians, activists and artists from the Islamic world. And all my interviews can still be found on the website there. So,
2: yeah. I love your tagline. Balancing our our approach to religion and spirituality.
3: Yeah.
2: Uh, That's what it's about, right? Thank you so much, Jonas, for joining me today, all the way from Belgium. And uh, for having me, very interesting conversation. Thank Thank you. Thank
3: you very much.
1: Radiate Wellness is an international community of holistic and alternative healers dedicated to helping you create spiritual, energetic, and physical well-being. To learn more about our practitioners, services, classes, and events, or to schedule an appointment, visit us at RadiateWellnessCommunity.com.